welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's do our team timeout. Our patient today is the breast module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And our operation or topic we're going to be covering today is operative breast cancer surgery. And we are lucky enough to be joined today by Miss Carolyn Baker, who is an incredible breast surgeon, as well as a fantastic teacher. And I'm really grateful that she's come on the program today to help us out with operative vivas specifically for breast surgery. I wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Carolyn Baker. So I'm head of breast surgery at St. Vincent's Public Hospital in Melbourne. And I've got the funny title of designated surgeon for St. Vincent's Breast Screen uh, Assessment Centre. So that just means the sort of chief surgical guidance for the Breast Screen Assessment Centre. So I'm old. I got my MBBS in 1985 and my FRACS in 1994. In in those days, it was a a much simpler pathway to get through your surgical training. I only did a single unaccredited registrar year and then straight through the fellowship. There weren't many girls in the FRACS. So when I graduated in 1994, I joined the 3% of surgical fellows who were female. Thankfully, uh, times have changed. So following that, I went overseas for nearly five years. So I lived in the UK um, and I did a couple of years as a fellow in a DGH in Gloucester and then went to Surrey. And initially, I thought I was going to be a general surgeon in a maybe a a large rural centre. But then I went to Royal Surrey and met my mentor, Mark Kisson, who basically mobilised my passion for breast cancer because that's what he had and it was contagious. So I spent 12 months with him. Then I went to the Royal Marston for 12 months uh, and did breast cancer subspecialty and some sarcoma and melanoma. Now, back in the mid-90s, breast cancer didn't really exist as a standalone specialty. It was still considered part of general surgery. But when I came back, really that was the beginnings of breast cancer separating off from general surgery and for people being proud enough to brand themselves as a breast specialist. So I would say that I was the first breast specialist subspecialty trained um, when I returned in 1998. So I came back to the Austin and Peter Mac and then was became head of unit at the Austin. So I was head of unit for about six years and then left the Austin and came back to my alma mater, my training hospital upon request and been at St V's for the last three years. So that's me. I am married. I have a daughter who's doing year 12 this year, so no stress. And my husband is not medical, so that's very good. Yes, very good for your mental health, I'm sure. (laughs) Indeed. Yes. Fantastic. So next I wanted to ask you if you could say anything to trainees who are studying for their fellowship what would you tell us you know what is something that you wish you'd known when you were a trainee um what what would you want to say to us so surgical training is a bit it's still hidebound in old-fashioned beliefs and hierarchical approaches 
And I would tell my young self that your bosses are actually human. They respond well to queries, to questions. They want to help. That's why they're at a teaching hospital. So you're training in a teaching hospital. Your bosses don't have to be in a teaching hospital, but they want to be there because they want the future to be filled with well-trained, sensible, clear-thinking trainees. So we want to convey that approach. You should be open. You should be comfortable to ask questions. You should communicate well and strongly with your bosses. We're not up on pedestals. We're there to help. So believe in yourself. The other thing I think is more to the females, I suppose, don't let gender be any sort of barrier. I, I didn't even really think about it. I didn't know that there was only going to be 3% of my colleagues when I, when I graduated. Women are much better at reading people, I believe. You know, that's we intuit better. And so one of the things I always used to think is, okay, I'm going to work out what makes my bosses tick, what makes them happy, what are their non-negotiables. I'm going to work that out and then make sure that that is my aim to get that done right to communicate well. So happy bosses make happy units. We all work well together, collaboration, collegiality. So be smart and, and intuit well. I probably should have worked a bit harder in clinical research, I think, when I was younger. All that time ago, it wasn't as important as, as it is now. You guys all know that you have to build your CV. But one of the perceptions of, of juniors when we give you a project is that uh, you're with us for a, a short amount of time potentially and we can't guarantee that the project's going to be completed. So if you say you're going to do something, do it. So that's what I would tell my young self because there was at least one project at the Marsden that I should have finished and I didn't and I know my boss was really cross but I didn't work that out until later. Yeah. <laughs> good advice. So into the meaty part of the episode, I wanted to talk to you about operative vivas. And full disclosure, I have been avoiding doing operative vivas because I felt like it was something I needed more experience to start talking about. So part of asking you to come onto this episode was to get me talking about operative vivas. To start us off, I thought I would run through a wide local excision. And then I have some questions for you about helping out with some operative approaches and some different pitfalls. And after we talk about wide local excision, I thought we could also cover mastectomy and axillary lymph node dissection. So for wide local excision, preoperatively, I review the patient's imaging, which usually includes a mammogram and ultrasound. I also review what my approach is going to be to localize the tumor. So that includes potentially a palpable tumor or localization with a wire or a mag seed. I then plan my incision in a location that gives me adequate access to the tumor, but also considers cosmesis. I incise the skin sharply, and I then use broad retractors such as cat's claws and then progressing to Maxwell retractors to raise flaps off the breast tissue, taking care not to overly thin out the skin flaps. And I continue this until I'm one to two centimeters beyond the tumor. Once I'm beyond the tumor, I place a Raytec um, under the fingers of my non-dominant hand on the tumor, and I then head straight down towards the pectoralis fascia. As I get deeper in, I lift the tumor out towards myself and dissect the posterior aspect off the pectoralis fascia muscle posteriorly. After that, I grasp the tumor in my hand 
And without letting go, I dissect the inferior aspect, keeping the tumor separate from my inferior excision line. Before removing the tumor, I mark it for orientation, and then I complete my dissection, ensuring uh, the lateral margins have been taken. I then check for bleeding and wash the cavity, and then close the cavity using dual plane mobilization at the level of the pectoralis fascia and the skin flap, making sure the breasts will come together and considering that in both the supine and the standing position. And I then use absorbable sutures to close the breast plate, picking up good connective tissue. I then infiltrate local anesthetic and close the skin in two layers. So my first question about wide local excision for Caroline is what are her tips or her advice for choosing where to place the incision for a wide local excision that both gives you adequate access to the tumour as well as considers a good cosmetic result? Okay. The first thing is every breast is different. So it's important to recognise the content of the breast. So how much of it is firm breast glandular tissue, which will tolerate stitching and rearrangement, and how much of it is fatty, okay? So you can work that out from how the breast feels and also from the mammographic density. So you've got um, an old lady with a very fat, fatty breast you're going to end up with a lot less flexibility uh, and a lot less tolerance of major rearrangement, all right? So look at the structure of the breast. The second, make sure that you've examined your patient upright because a breast lying on the operating table is very different to an upright breast. So I would always, especially, you know, the lower half lesions, I would be making sure that I try and mark them with the patient upright because you want to see where the incision is going to sit when the patient's walking around because that's what they're going to be looking at. So the third thing is the degree of ptosis. So ptosis ends up with the patient having potentially quite a bit of shear between the skin and the breast parenchyma. So the skin is often quite floppy as well. So you have to be cognizant of the impact that that will have on your on your scarring. So the easy places to do incisions are anything that is periareola. Important again to mark the margins of the areola before you prep because it can be quite hard to see a a pale areola. So um, doing it without any prep on with your surgical marking, that's important. So if you can reach something from a periareola incision, they do heal very nicely. The only thing to think about is in a young woman who hasn't breastfed, make sure that your periareola incision is not going to cause too much segmental duct disruption and, you know, increase potentially their risk of mastitis in the longer term. The next thing is that uh, inframammary crease is a very nice incision. The patient never sees it. It's important probably to make the incision just about a centimetre above the crease so that it doesn't sit right in the bra. Again, that needs to be marked with the patient upright, not uh, lying down because it moves quite a lot. The third incisions to look at are the lateral mammary incisions. There's a net, you know, where the breast finishes laterally, that's a nice uh, incision. And for a big phyllodes or fibroadenoma, that can be a good access point. 
And the last thing to, to consider is obviously the direction of the skin of Lang's line. The classical incisions would be radially placed in the lower half of the breast and curvy linear in the, in the upper part of the breast. Uh, and actually that's not the last thing. And then the last thing is also to make sure that you think about what clothes your patients wear. So some of your young patients will like to wear real scoop neck tops, uh, they'll wear bikinis, etc. And so you, you've got to try and keep your scar out of the cleavage if at all possible. So for cosmesis and for obviously the increased risk of keloid scar formation in the more medially placed scars. So that's a lot of things to think about in each patient. So you you can't just say, okay, there's a tumour at nine o'clock, I'm going to make my incision here. It's a tumour at nine o'clock in a particular type of breast and it's a particular size. Um, the size of the lesion also, um, people have different size areola. So if you make a periareola incision in a very small areola, uh, you're limited in what size lesion you can remove from that incision. So you might have to do a lateral um, extension to facilitate that. That's a lot of a lot of thinking, but that's what you need to do for each each incision. So my next question is: I sort of have a good plan for how to remove a palpable cancer. I'm talking about removing a palpable cancer, but I find it more difficult to verbalize an approach for an impalpable cancer. So my question for you is: what your localization technique of choice is for impalpable tumors, and how you think about how that guides your resection and what you're actually going to resect. So we're lucky, about a year ago, we were able to introduce the technique of um, MAG-seed localisation. So for us, when we had morning lists, having patients having hook wires put in in the morning was an inevitable delay to the start of the list. So the MAG-seed is very nice for the patient. It's introduced in an elective setting and is the same sort of process for the patient as the core biopsy. So a lot less cumbersome, a lot less uncomfortable. Uh, it's just a little clip about the size of the marking clips and with a vaguely competent breast radiologist, very easy to insert. So the, for those who don't know what a mag seed is, in essence, it's not a, uh, it is magnetised at the time of surgery by the device that you use to localise it and it allows you to do a much more targeted excision. Traditionally, you have uh, if a patient has a hook wire introduced, the point of skin puncture and the end of the wire can be very long way apart, especially in a mammogram-guided hook wire insertion where the patient is in compression uh, when the wire is inserted and then when the compression comes off there's often a lot of movement so if there's a big gap between the skin point insertion and the tip of the wire it can be challenging to make your incision to allow you to both deliver the wire tip and get the lesion out so magseed allows you to make your incision a lot closer to where the lesion is. So in terms of thinking, you need to go back to your imaging and say, okay, here's this lesion. I know it's impalpable, but it's at, you know, 10 o'clock, 3 cm from the nipple on an ultrasound. In your head, remember, 
that position is with the patient lying on the table with their arm out at right angles, potentially a little bit rolled with a pillow underneath their shoulder. This is how the radiologist will have measured that where that lesion is. The other thing you need to be clear and you need to establish a relationship with your radiologist is distance from the nipple. Does that mean from the areola margin or does it mean from the nipple stalk? Because that could be three centimetres different if someone's got a big areola. So you need to be clear in your communication about what those measurements mean. So go back to your imaging, work out where the lesion is and basically turn a 2D image to a 3D image in your head. So you've got to work out quadrant and depth. So depth can be measured both on ultrasound and on mammogram. Uh, So you've got just a map in your head of how you're going to approach it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So once you've known in your head where you think that the lesion is, you then proceed to do your wide local excision based on your own 3D picture of where the lesion is. And then following that, you confirm with either x-ray or ultrasound to make sure that you've got the whole lesion. Correct, yes. The MagSeed technique is a very accurate technique because it, it, it is very position sensitive, the direction of the probe. So there's absolutely no doubt when you've got the lesion because it screams at you with the, with the probe. But the further confirmation is to do a specimen image. And in any patient who has... Uh, an image-guided excision, it's mandatory to do some form of specimen imaging. Now, that doesn't have to be a mammogram. It can be a specimen ultrasound done by the surgeon if they're comfortable and well-trained. But there needs to be documented that specimen imaging has occurred. So that concludes our discussion about wide local excision. Next, we're going to move on to mastectomy. So first, I'm going to try describing the mastectomy technique, and then I have a couple of questions for Caroline. So preoperatively, I review that patient's imaging and pathology and make sure I'm aware of the location of the tumor. Preoperatively, I like to examine the patient sitting up, and I mark the midline, the edges of the breastplate, the inframammary fold, the sternal notch, and the clavicles. I also consider my lateral margin and whether that patient has excess tissue. Once a patient is asleep, I mark my incision lines. I'm aiming for tight and even skin flaps, and I mark a wide ellipse with a horizontal incision um, being my aim in order to keep the lateral margin out of the axilla. I then use upwards and downwards movement of the breast to plan my uh, incision lines superiorly and inferiorly. I incise the skin sharply and have my assistant use broad retractors to elevate the skin anteriorly and use my non-dominant hand to retract the breast tissue towards myself in order to enter the mastectomy plane. I raise skin flaps initially superiorly, then laterally and inferiorly, making sure not to overly thin out the flaps. I'm aiming to remove all of the breast tissue by following the contour of the breast until I reach the chest wall. Superiorly, this should extend to the second rib, laterally out to the latissimus dorsi muscle and inferiorly to the inframammary fold. Once I've completed this dissection, I then turn my attention medially to raise a medial flap, making sure not to cross the midline and being aware of the perforators medially and making sure to secure these with clips. 
I then follow the anatomical margin of dissection posteriorly, lifting the breast tissue off the pectoralis and serrata fascia posteriorly and making sure that I remove the entire axillary tail, again, out to the latissimus dorsi as well as the axillary clavipectoral fascia. I make sure to mark my specimen with sutures and I then wash the operative field with warm water in order to identify any potential bleeding as well as to remove any loose pieces of breast tissue or fat. After confirming hemostasis, I place a large suction drain and then close the skin in layers and place a dressing. Postoperatively, I will remove the drain once there has been less than 50 mils of output over two 24-hour periods. So my first question for Caroline about mastectomy is about skin flaps. So what are your tips for getting into the correct mastectomy plane and for maintaining a constant thickness of your skin flap? Okay. So the first thing is that not all people are made the same. So body habitus will tell you what you can expect for skin flap thickness. So a slender person will have not much subcutaneous fat, so the skin flap plane will be thin. A more well-endowed patient, not just breast-wise but all over, will have a thicker plane. Okay, so you just need to say, what am I expecting from that perspective, number one. Then number two, if the patient has had any neoadjuvant therapy, so either neoadjuvant chemotherapy or radiotherapy, they will most likely have edema. Okay, and so that plane will also you would expect to be a bit thicker. In particular, you know, in our patients where we've done reverse, so they've had neoadjuvant radiotherapy first, almost without exception, they've got quite considerable persistent breast edema. So that will translate to a slightly thicker plane. Okay, so in your head, what am I expecting? Number one. So, number two, when you start, choose a spot where there's no obvious edema in the skin if possible uh, and also start away from the blue dye if you've injected the patent blue v if they're having a sentinel node try and start in a quadrant of the breast where there are the least confounding variables okay make your incision and make sure that the skin hooks i always start with skin hooks to get myself started are not too far apart. Um, some assistants think they're being helpful and they put their skin hooks, you know, 15 centimetres apart. In fact, you want to get that plane right in the very first bit. So I usually would have my skin hooks probably only about five centimetres apart in the very beginning. So nice upward traction by your assistant and take it slowly, the very first bit. So if you can make it bloodless at the beginning so you can actually identify the vessels that are in the subcutaneous plane that are meant to remain with the skin flap. Don't go into them. Allow them to lift forward. There's a lovely fascial plane that sits nicely between the subcutaneous fat and the breast envelope you can see it as little tiny vertical fibers if you get the tension right and if you have a spare assistant one of the other things is for them to put some counter traction on the skin about maybe 10 15 centimeters above the incision so in fact i sort of call it triangulated traction because you've got your assistant lifting up on the uh, skin hooks and so that's vertical your 
left hand, if you're right-handed, is tucked in and it's bent and you're putting significant traction at your metacarpophalangeal junction. So you're pulling down quite substantially. And that left hand does a lot of work in a mastectomy. And that's got to be constantly controlling the direction you're going and the traction, okay? And then you've got the third person with some tension on the skin a little bit above the flap. So it gives you this triangulated point and it just makes the plane open. You can see where it's going to be. So I think a very important thing is your left hand providing that constant control of the direction and where the tension is going to go. So start in a small spot. Get it right in a small spot with no bleeding and then move Um, just deepen it and move medially and laterally. Don't fall into the trap of doing a tunnel so that you start in one spot and then all of a sudden you're 15 centimetres from your skin hole and you're down the end of a tunnel, right? So you start a bit, a broaden on either side, then you go a bit further forward, you broaden on either side. In a skin-sparing mastectomy, when you've got a smaller hole, Don't fall into the trap of leaving, you know, the lower third still attached at the edge of your incision because that limits your traction ability because it's the hole won't stretch any further if you've only just gone through the skin and you haven't actually dissected and given yourself a bit more stretch and flexibility to open up your dissecting hole. Does that feel like you're living the operation with me? It does. That's fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. So my next question is something that we did the other day, actually, which I thought was really helpful, which was the um, redundant skin on the lateral aspect and approaches to minimizing a dog ear there. We did a fishtail type approach to that. So I was hoping you could describe that for our listeners. Sure. So one of the, um, especially in a, a lady who is a larger lady, if you're doing a mastectomy without a reconstruction, it's very common to end up with dog ears at either end of the incision. And once again, that's something that uh, there's a big difference between the patient being upright and the patient being supine on the operating table. So you need to try and look very carefully at the lateral and medial ends of the incision when, when the patient's upright. So if you pinch the patient Um, laterally, a lot of body fat from the back will end up being bunched and sitting as a quite substantial dog ear unless you make some attempt to pull it forward and flatten it down. And patients find that lateral dog ear really annoying to sit flat underneath their bra or under a prosthesis. So it's good to make efforts to try and flatten that down. So one way to do it is to measure your flaps to try and make the upper and lower flaps of similar length. The second way is to do a curve on the lower flap. So the top flap will be end up to a going to a point laterally. If you do a, like a scooped curve on the lower flap, it means that you can pull the most inferior portion of that curve up and medial so that it pulls that back fat up and flattens it down as you do your closure. So if someone hasn't got a lot, that will help flatten it down and sit and end up with a nice flat mastectomy scar. My breast 
mentor, Mark Kisson, always said, make the closure as tight as you can because there'll always be a bit of give and a patient doesn't like a floppy scar. It ends up with challenges long-term, little grooves and, and crevices that are, are annoying, hard to clean and mean that a prosthesis doesn't sit well. So within the limits of you know vascular disease and smoker and prior radiotherapy and steroids, the things that mean that you don't want too much tension in your flaps, make them as tight as you can. So the other thing that we did the other day was um, basically creating a, a fishtail closure. So the way to do that is you make a, like a, a Y closure at the lateral end of the mastectomy. So if we put a skin hook on the apex and pull it medially, so that's the, the most lateral extent of the incision. If we put a skin hook on that and try and pull it medially, that will create an upper closure and a lower closure. It's quite hard to verbalise. It's easier to draw a picture, really. For our listeners at this point, it'd be worth Googling a fishtail closure for the lateral aspect of a mastectomy wound to get a better idea about what we're talking about. Exactly. But it, it ends up basically with a wide closure and it brings the apex that is of the medial portion of that closure is actually really puts a lot of tension on that back flap and pulls it forward pulls it medially and flattens it down and it's good for nice redundant a lot of redundant skin so it's definitely a a, a nice closure mm, i saw that lady in clinic it looked really great did it oh that's good have to be careful on that apical stitch so that most um, medial part of the Y just have to make sure you try not to do a full thickness uh, subdermal stitch in that apex like any you know apical closure because you can get some necrosis of that tip so need to do a subdermal stitch under there. So the next operation I wanted to talk about was axillary lymph node dissection. I did go over this recently with Caroline, so this is my summary, but I do have a couple of questions which she's been kind enough to answer for us after I've gone through it. So first I will review that patient's imaging and the location of the involved lymph nodes. I'd like to confirm that these are located in levels 1 and 2 and that there's no evidence of level 3 or supraclavicular nodes which would change my operative approach. So I prep and drape the patient with free draping of the arm. I make an incision in the base of the hair-bearing skin in a 90-degree angle to the pec minor muscle between the posterior border of pec major to the anterior border of the latissimus dorsi. I can also use a mastectomy wound if I've done a mastectomy um, or contiguous wound with breast-conserving surgery if it's going to give me appropriate access. I then raise the skin flaps. I do this by developing flaps superiorly and inferiorly, having my assistant use cat's claws and then progress to Maxwell flap retractors, making sure not to overly thin out the flaps. Once I've done this, I incise the clavipectoral fascia adjacent to the pec major muscle, and I then continue my dissection down the lateral edge of the pec major muscle and follow this again down, incising laterally to the pec minor muscle, at this point being mindful not to injure the medial pectoral bundle. 
I follow the lateral edge of pec minor to the posterior aspect of that muscle and then I extend superiorly until I find the axillary vein. An assistant is then placed above the arm and retracts the pec minor muscle with a large Langebeck or a Diva or a lighted retractant. And I'm asking them to lift the pec minor muscle superiorly and medially in order to gain access to the level two lymph nodes. At this point, I will encounter the axillary lipoma anterior to the axillary vein. And I want to dissect around the superior medial edge of that to bring it down below the vein and clear the vein anteriorly. I want to do this all the way down to the inferior border of the vein and find the point that the vein is crossed by the pec minor muscle. My dissection then continues medially, clearing off the medial chest wall and serratus muscle, and I'll continue this medial dissection down until I identify the long thoracic nerve. This nerve should be located on serratus anterior, posterior to the mid-axillary line, and it can be behind the serratus fascia. And I want to make sure I'm using blunt dissection to identify the nerve and then to push this medially out of my dissection field. I then come back up to the vein um, and clear down laterally, and I want to identify the thoracodorsal vein, which comes off the posterior inferior surface of the axillary vein. This should help me localize the thoracodorsal nerve, which I would expect to find medial and posterior to this vein. Once I've identified both of those nerves, I then perform an interneural dissection between these nerves to clear the fat and nodes from the vein superiorly all the way down to the inferior extent of my dissection, which is the angular vein. I'll expect to encounter the intercostobrachial nerves, which run transversely across the axilla and are often running through the clearance. If I encounter these nerves, I will attempt to save them. However, I'll have a low threshold to sacrifice these nerves if they were going to influence the oncological outcome of my surgery and I'd warn the patient about medial arm numbness after the operation. I'll see a leash work of vessels behind the fascia of the latissimus dorsi muscle and I try to stay anterior to this. Once I've concluded the dissect and remove my specimen, I then re-examine the cavity for any residual palpable lymphadenopathy um, and I examine the space between the pec major and minor muscle for any palpable nodes as well as feel medial to the pec minor muscle superiorly for the level three nodes. Once this is done, I wash out the cavity, confirm hemostasis, and I leave a drain. And again, I remove this when there's less than 50 mils for two consecutive 24-hour periods. So you're unlikely to be asked to do a whole complicated, something like an auxiliary clearance. You're probably not going to spend um, 15 minutes of your viva talking about the whole thing from go to woe. They are more likely to focus in on a particular aspect like how do you find the axillary vein or how do you find the thoracodorsal pedicle but as a purely technical exercise it's actually really good practice to start from the beginning and walk away all the way through it Hmm. and I guess it's also important to know all the steps so that when you do get asked about a particular part of the operation you can just jump straight to that so my first question about axillary clearance is something I'm not quite clear on we talk about the interneural clearance between the long thoracic and the thoracodorsal nerve but there's still tissue lateral to the thoracodorsal nerve and bundle do we have to take that tissue as well is that something that we focus so, on down that lateral theoretically tissue, the that nodes that sit tissue? lateral to the thoracodorsal pedicle they are the nodes of the arm not the breast so if you look at the anatomical 
lymphocentogram pictures of, so with an injection on the dorsum of the uh, hand and looking at lymphatic flow, you'll see that they predominantly, those nodes sit lateral to the thoracodorsal pedicle, whereas the breast nodes are medial to the thoracodorsal pedicle. So if you were wanting to reduce lymphedema, uh, then you would not deviate into those nodes lateral to the thoracodorsal pedicle. However, you'll often feel cancer in those nodes or you can feel fibrosis showing that they've had scarring. So in a relatively pristine axilla, if you can see feel those nodes and they look normal, I will leave those nodes, okay? You don't need to go hunting those. So strictly speaking, when you're talking about um, the boundaries of an axillary dissection it is the lateral border of the thoracodorsal pedicle not into those other nodes but in every axillary dissection also when you're deciding where do I stop okay you should always have a feel into level three so if it feels like there's disease there you need to track to level three uh, and you know go right up to Halstead's ligament if necessary you also should feel above the axillary vein because some nodal disease will extend above. Some of that may be resectable if you can in continuity and bring it down, but others it's not. And the last question I wanted to ask you about axillary dissection is around what you think are the more difficult parts of the operation and if you have any tips for trainees on how to overcome those challenges. Okay, so I think you need to decide if you're a bottom-up dissector or you're a top-down dissector. And I think I said to you that I like to find the vein and dissect down from that. Now, the, the reality is, is that the axillary vein is the key to the anatomy of the axilla. And if you don't know where the vein is, you can't work out where anything else is. So that's my rationale for finding the vein first. So the easiest way to find the vein is to find pec minor. So you find pec major, slip over the side, go on to find pec minor inferiorly from that, and then track the lateral border of pec minor up, and it's naturally going to cross the axillary vein. You will, of course, come across the medial pectorals in your journey up between the lateral border uh, tracking pec minor up because they pop out between major and minor. So you just have to be careful of those. They're annoying and they bleed a lot. So just clip them uh, as you're passing. Try and preserve the medial pectoral um, nerve if you can. So you come up, you track it up, and there we are. There's big blue. So once you've seen the vein, then you can take a breath and say, oh, I've hit the vein. Then anything above that obviously is level two. Anything below that is level one. So that's a, a simple way to find the vein. And it's it's hard not to find the vein that way, really. So the, the other thing that people sometimes run into trouble with is they think they're in the axilla, but they're not in the axilla. In a bulky armpit, with a lot of subcutaneous tissue, it's a long way in and there can be up to three leaves of the clavipectoral fascia that you end up going through and dividing before all of a sudden there's a little give. You go through that last layer of the clavipectoral fascia and 
the fat bulges and it tells you that you've transitioned from the sub, more subcutaneous fat finally into the axillary fat, which is more lobulated. It has a slightly different colour and texture and you know you're there, okay? Because people can get confused and think I can't find anything and they're just not in deep enough. Because sometimes, you, you know, you might have to be in 10 centimetres before you're actually there. The second thing that can be hard to find is the long thoracic nerve. Now, people normally look for the long thoracic nerve and it's they're too anterior. You found the vein and that's your, your guiding point. The long thoracic nerve is going to be in an AP direction. It's significantly posterior to that junction point of the vein and where and serratus basically okay so it's posterior to the mid axillary line behind the serratus fascia okay so there are multiple ways of finding the long thoracic nerve you can find it at the top you can find it at the bottom but you've always you've got to track far enough posteriorly going down 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 you need to remember that the long thoracic nerve because it's behind the serratus fascia Often the serratus fascia can be attenuated and pulled really lateral, right off actually the muscle. And it can sit potentially up to nearly two centimetres lateral to the muscle. The fascia can attenuate out and stretch out and it brings the nerve out with it, okay? So you need to be clear. It feels like a bowstring so you can you know, just pluck it with your finger to feel there's a band, okay, uh, and it's behind the, the fascia. The other thing, obviously, you can see it. So when we were doing that the other day, you can see that obviously the uh, vasa nevorum on the surface and it's white and if the patient's not paralysed, you can give it a little, obviously, a little pinch with a pair of debakies and you'll see contraction of the serratus muscle. So, so they're the ways to find the long thoracic. That key sort of trickiness is to make sure that you haven't pulled it out away from the chest wall and that you once you've seen it that you incise the fascia just lateral to the nerve and allow it to push back to back where it belongs because it likes to get in the action you need to push it back against um, serratus and keep it out of the way right so the third the third key thing that can be tricky to find is the thoracodorsal pedicle Again, I find it much more sensible to find the pedicle up on the vein rather than down the bottom because there are no good landmarks down the bottom, I think. It's a lot easier to find it at the top. So the important thing anatomically is the thoracodorsal pedicle comes off the posteroinferior surface of the vein. So, you know, when you're tracking along the axillary vein from medial to lateral, there'll be frequently one, two, sometimes even three veins that are more medial than the thoracodorsal pedicle. So the comfort level, you don't, don't divide anything that's running up and down until you've clearly identified everything. But those additional veins, so lateral thoracic veins, will be coming off the anterior surface of the vein, okay, rather than the posteroinferior. So anyway, sweep laterally, clear the anterior surface of the vein, and then sometimes far more lateral than you think it's going to be, the thoracodorsal pedicle will be there off the posteroinferior surface. So 
the nerve for the thoracodorsal pedicle is almost without exception on the medial uh, edge of the thoracodorsal, and then it does a little dance. It waves around with the with the artery and the nerve ro- um, rotating around the vein. Usually will run anterior, sometimes runs posterior. So the other key danger, okay, that you need to be aware of in that interneural dissection that you talked about, so we've identified long thoracic nerve. If we've seen the top of the thoracodorsal pedicle, we need to make sure that we also find the nerve. Now, the nerve can sometimes very kindly join the pedicle right at the top, okay? But on other occasions, it can run along oblique course sitting and be right in the middle of that area that you want to dissect free. And it may not join that medial edge of the thoracodorsal pedicle until, you know, it's five centimetres below the vein. So in that period of time, it is vulnerable to be damaged in your interneural dissection. So you really need to be careful and attentive that you don't damage that nerve when you're poking around trying to identify your anatomy. I think that's about the main issues. I mean, obviously, the other thing that people talk about is... um, damaging the axillary vein and how you would uh, manage that. Touch wood. I am sitting in a wooden desk. haven't managed to do that uh, in whatever many years. But clearly, you know, it's the standard principles of managing damage to a, a vessel. Uh, so, you know, line, good retraction, uh, good lighting, call for an extra assistant, get the suction working and um, make the anaesthetist aware that you might have a problem. And some Ellis forceps, if you can see the hole, if you can manage to get uh, some Ellis forceps on either side, if you haven't got any vascular clamps in theatre, they won't have them. You know, theatres in this day don't have anything that's readily available. If you send for a vascular clamp, it'll take 10 minutes to arrive. So you would normally have an Ellis forceps on your setup and you could just um, gently put that on either side to lift it up and a vascular uh, suture for closure. But the idea is not to do that, clearly. Prevention is better than a cure. Yeah, and, you know, you're going to be more likely to cause a problem with the axillary vein in a node-positive patient where you've got treatment effect. There's a nice natural barrier uh, for cancer and it's pretty uncommon in this day and age that you would expect to be operating in an axilla where you get unexpected disease invading into the... um, uh, brachial plexus or into the um, vascular pedicle because those things should have been identified and those patients should have had neoadjuvant therapy to help control all of that disease and make a resection feasible. Okay, in the old days we used to have to, you know, if you made an error with your assessment of an axilla, occasionally you'd have to stop and say, "I'm going to damage," so you put clips on and ask for the radiotherapy to rescue you afterwards. But really, with the staging that we do. Um, now you should be able to forestall that problem. So for our last discussion, I asked Caroline whether we could go over some of the operations and she suggested that we go over sentinel node. Despite me not doing a great job explaining this off the cuff, I've left this bit in because I think it really uh, helped me realize some of the things I could improve on with my operative surgery, and I hope you learn from it as well. So don't judge me too harshly. 
right, why don't we do um, a sentinel node? You've seen a few sentinel nodes, haven't you? So why, why don't you have a go? Okay, so for a sentinel lymph node biopsy, I ensure dual localization. So in my institution, we um, do lymphocentigraphy and then I'd also inject um, two mils of patent blue subareolarly patients asleep and massage that for five minutes. After performing my breast surgery, I'd place a, a two to three centimeter long incision at the base of the hair bearing skin. I dissect down raising. Okay. So actually what we might stop and we'll talk about a few things already. Okay. So the blue dye is really messy, okay? So I, I usually do the sentinel node first, in particular if you're going to be excising a lesion that's in the upper outer quadrant, you'll end up cutting through the blue dye um, and you might uh, impact on the flow of the dye up into the sentinel node. So I normally do the sentinel node first rather than second. I think Joss might do it the other way around, but it's usually easier, I feel, to do the sentinel node first. And my incision is actually directed by where the marks are on the skin. So choosing a, you know, a, a spot and always using that incision, if the sentinel node's actually, you know, a level three node or it's an intramammary node, that's no good. So you need to decide if the patients have had a lymphocytogram, they usually get marks on the skin as a guide, but then I use the probe and I look at the direction from externally and, and work out where I think I'm going to make my incision based on the maximum count from externally. So that's, that's what I would usually do. Uh, yeah, that's fine. So keep going. Uh, so I sharply incise the skin and then dissect down entering through the clavipectoral fascia um, to enter the axilla proper. I then use my probe again to direct the direction I'm going to dissect. So usually I'll use a long Roberts forcep to spread the tissue to try to identify a node that's blue. And again, I'm frequently rechecking with my probe to um, try and localize a hot and blue node. Often I'll use a Babcock forcep to pull the tissue out towards myself um, once I feel that I'm getting close again to try to localize the node. And once I've identified a hot and blue node, um, I then uh, clip the pedicle and remove that and confirm um, the count with the gamma probe uh, that that node is and label that and send that for specimen pathology. At that point, I then re-inspect the uh, axilla and again examine with the gamma probe to see if there's any residual activity, which would then guide whether or not I need to be searching for additional nodes. I also palpate to feel if there's any palpable uh, nodes and my aim is to remove two to three central nodes if possible if they are hot and blue. Another technique is to also, if I find blue lymphatics, to follow those lymphatics down towards a blue node. Um, once I've removed um, all palpable and hot and blue nodes. Um, I then do a background count to confirm that it's less than 10% of my hottest nodes count and wash the axilla and close in layers. Okay. So you've got all the major points. I probably, the only comment I would make is that I didn't quite feel I was at the operation. So when, when you're doing an operative viva, throw in, so you did say you used a couple of instrument names. So, so that's good. But um, the other things to do, I would get my assistant to do this. And, you know, normally when you go down through the subcutaneous layers, okay, uh, and then you breach the clavipectoral fascia, you're deepening the incision with a progressive use of 
you know, you start with Langenbeck's and then you go on to whatever, you know, Richardson's or Long Langenbeck's or what have you. But the first thing you'll usually see is a blue lymphatic, right? So because if you say I'm just looking straight for a node, you'll have cut through lymphatics and the blue dye will go everywhere, right? The idea is to keep the blue dye contained so you can actually see what you're heading for. The same is the idea is to stop blood in a field. The blue dye, you've only injected two mils and it looks like it would cover a football field if it spreads, okay? So as you're deepening down, you'll usually see the first lot of little lymphatics that'll just, they'll just pop around the edge of pec major, okay? And they'll start their little travel down towards the axilla. So I'll identify usually in the upper part of the wound a first lymphatic and then I'll start following that inferiorly. And I'll clip it so that I don't breach it and then I'll continue because the, the point of using the blue dye, it's like a treasure hunt, right? I, I talk about the blue gods, are they in our favour today? So, but literally you're following a lymphatic so as you head towards where you want to go. And as you follow the lymphatic, you can use the probe to help you with your direction. But a large axilla, there can be a lot of farting around unless you've got something to follow to get you to the right spot, okay? So I think that that's important to, to say, because it's, you know, a question could be you've been in an axilla for 10 minutes and you haven't found a sentinel node. What are you going to do? So the answer would be where are the spots where I would have missed a sentinel node? So those spots would be in the axillary tail. So frequently when you make that first incision, your, your impetus is always to go up, but actually the sentinel node might be just there, just in the axillary tail. Right, so and that can be hard to find if you don't shield the radiation coming through from the injection site. So you've got to make sure that you turn the probe around so that it's not going down towards the injection site, but you're getting it sort of parallel and in that lower flap. Okay, so that can be where the sentinel node will be. And then the other spot you can miss is up in level three. So occasionally you'll get what used to be called a skip metastasis, you know, up in level three with nothing in level one and level two, but it's just that your sentinel node is actually in level three. So you haven't gone high enough up underneath PEC, stick the probe right up, in you know up into level two and aim upwards okay so they would be the spots and then the last spot would be down deep in the gutter between lat dorsi and serratus you know because there can be down you know even running at even at the level of the long thoracic so there can be nodes running down there that can be the other spot that you miss and it's a long way especially in a patient where the lymphocentogram has not localised to the axilla in your initial scans, that can be where it is. It's a, a long way in, it's deep, it's taken a long way to get there. And, you know, that might happen in an old patient, a patient who's got previous scarring in the axillary tail so that, you know, the transition and flow is impaired and it takes a lot longer to get there. People who are having redo sentinel nodes if they've got their second cancer. Um, so those factors can mean that it can take longer for the tracer to get through and the blue dye may be your saviour because you follow it. So given how passionate Caroline is about education, I just wanted to let her mention one of the education programs that's coming up that she's involved in. 
This can be found and registered for through a link on the VCCC website. I'll also post this on the show notes. And just so everyone knows, the session that Caroline's talking about is being held on the 16th of September, but these are being held regularly. So even if you're listening to this episode later than that, it's worth checking it out because there may still be an upcoming education session. For teaching purposes, uh, we've got our third Australia-wide VCCC teaching session happening next Wednesday at 5.30. There will be a link on the VCCC website. There's also a link being sent out to the fellows who are members of Breast Surgeons. We've been running this teaching in Melbourne and now with the advent of virtual platforms, we've been able to extend it Australia-wide. So, in fact, one of the presenters next week is from Brisbane, who's uh, a year one um, breast surgeons fellow. And then another presenter is a radiotherapy trainee. So it's a multidisciplinary teaching platform on breast cancer. So keep your eye out for that. that's all we have time for on today's episode of First Incision. I'm sure you are as grateful as I am for the time that Caroline has given up for us today, going through some really pertinent operative Viva content for the breast module, as well as for answering all of my questions about breast surgery. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!